Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with thought leaders from around the world who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder of Protein, and throughout season five, we've been asking what community means today in collaboration with Protein Agency for their Dirty Words report series. And by adopting a more collaborative approach to our methodology, we'll be hosting a variety of conversations across our channels to provide the foundational perspective for this piece of research. I'm mostly interested in the evolution of culture and society through technology. So I'm very curious about how the ways we create work, how we relate to each other, how we connect to each other, how we create meaning in the world is changing. For episode 41, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Austin Ruby from MetaLabel and Severin Matusek from Comata to talk about their After the Creator Economy project, which questions if we will still be clicking like and follow in 15 years' time. Both are longtime friends of Protein, so it was great to record this in person ahead of their London launch event in our studios in Shoreditch. Great to have you here in person. Rare opportunity for uh, Severin and for Austin to be in Protein Studios. So let's start with just some introductions, who you are, <laughs> what might you be known for, what are you doing here? Austin, you want to go first? Hey, uh, it's great to be here in, in, uh, in London, see the Protein Studios in person. I'm a co-founder of MetaLabel, um, which is a, a group that's building tools and infrastructure for groups of people to release creative work together. And before that, I had been a member of a cooperative called Ampled, which is a platform that is like a Patreon-like platform for musicians, but structured as a co-op, collectively owned by the artists and workers with no outside ownership. So that was an experiment in collective ownership. And, and some of those themes had led me to explore those within a Web3 context of uh, another sandbox for experiments for collective ownership and collective governance. So that's something that I've been interested in and through that context, exploring and participating in many Web3-based communities and connected to Protein through one of those, through Seed Club. So that might be a recurring theme of meeting people on dark forest corners of the internet, um, Zoom chats or discords. So um, I would say a path of um, working working in creative online spaces, um, an interest in collectivity. And um, so that's that's led me to MetaLabel and I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you, Austin, and great to meet you in person. (laughs) So much better than Zoom. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Severin? Yeah, I'm Severin. Um, I'm based in Berlin, Germany. This is not the first time I'm at Protein. I've been here a number of times. I've had the honor of knowing Will for almost 10 years, I think. Uh, I guess it was 2014. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. At a conference I organized in Berlin. Um, yeah, but I'm the founder of a strategy and research studio called Comata. I started this f- uh, about six years ago. And I actually do remember that I was here, I think, when I started it. And I came to Will and I was like, Will, I'm going to start some sort of agency consultancy around community building. How should I do it? 
And Will was like, I don't know, just do it. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> um, I was looking for advice, but there was no advice. <laughs> Other than just go ahead and do it. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for about six years. So I'm mostly interested in the evolution of culture and society through technology. So I'm very curious about how the ways we create work, how we relate to each other, how we connect to each other, how we create meaning in the world is changing through new media and technology. And that naturally went into the direction of Web3 in the last few years, as well as the metaverse, digital identity, virtual reality. Um, that's all this kind of stuff that I'm interested in and working on um yeah and i was very lucky to cooperate with austin and the meta label team on after the creator economy uh, late last year which we're going to present at protein tonight and which we're going to talk about a little bit today. yeah for sure and um if i remember rightly you also presented your first report here yeah in the kitchen yes which that's is true. where we're doing it tonight yeah. that feels like <laughs> yeah. some Full circle moments happening. Pretty much five years ago, yeah. So that's the first report I've done in 2018 uh, that was on the state of communities. Um, and yeah, today we're here for After the Create Economy. Awesome. And on that, let's dive into it. Um, whoever wants to go in terms of, I have copies in my hand, I love the print, um, maybe as an introduction of... Uh, you know, what questions it lo it's looking to answer. I think that sort of maybe is a, is a good opener. Well, it starts with a question. That's which... <laughs> I was going to ask you that question, actually, if we want to be specific. It's like, in 15 years, will we still be asking people to like and subscribe? Right. It's an interesting question because, of course, will, the will, answer will is, is probably not, right? But if you, it's hard to imagine any coherent alternative it's like a version of capitalist realism but it's like creator economy realism like it's just so hard to think of what else could there be but then you look back and think well likes were an invention that wasn't that long ago right and it was like a very different way of treating how we put creative work out into the world so it is we're in a moment where uh, people both sense that a larger shift is coming, that maybe a lot of our current logic of the platform economy is on its last legs or due for some something very new, but also that it's not as easy to think about what that is right now. There's a lot of tinkering and exploring. And so this, um, this publication is a lot focused um, on the perspectives of individual creative people of various disciplines. So it's, in, a, in many ways, it's like an exploration of a more personal side or like the emotional anxieties that people feel uh, interacting with a platform economy or release, releasing work, monetizing work, asking for people's attention, um, competing with other, other people. And... So this is really more of a collection of s stories um, from from people. Um, also, just about um, like what it is like working as an individual versus working more collectively. So in this publication, we um, talk to many people, highlight their their stories and their practices, and kind of um, 
share various uh, trends or vectors of where we imagine the next phase of this online creative economy going. And the point of setting the scene, can we have a quick definition of a creator and economy? Because they are two, uh, in our language, dirty words, right? <laughs> words that have been used so much, they've lost all meaning. So we'd love to hear your views on actually when we talk about the creator economy, you know, what is it? I'd say, so we have, we have a, a few chapters about this in the book. Um, the way we perceive economy is that it, is, it has to be seen as an economy, which means it's a word and a term that's mostly being used and defined by venture capitalists. Venture capitalists that are looking for a new investment opportunity uh, and trying to build a thesis around that investment opportunity, which means if economy is attached to the word creator... Um, the whole entirety and vastness of you know creativity and the way we express ourselves is minimized to basically an economic system that has a certain input and a certain output and is optimized for monetization. So that's something we wanted to make very clear in the publication that when we talk about the creative economy, we talk about something very specific within a specific economic system. And also the term creator in that sense, basically the way we see it within the creative economy is the definition of an endlessly replicable resource of people producing work in order to feed these platforms that you know monetize through advertising and data extraction. So that's the definition of creator and economy within that context. And I mean, one one thing that came up frequently was uh, frustration with the word creator, as it's a very um, generalized term that abstracts so much of actually what it is like to have a, a, a creative practice that that creator as a, a term it like really just flattens creativity to be like this uh, package of content delivered online um, which is not how people see their work and, and I you know one of the the questions that we had in the zine was this back and forth of whether or not to put the word creator in quotations throughout the entire thing of like, do we accept the premise of just calling it this? And I asked Matt Dryhurst about it in one of the, the interviews and he expressed a similar frustration, but, you know, just acknowledge that maybe this term is like just something that is recognizable for what, what you're trying to communicate or convey. And one other thing that we surfaced in this, which I don't think, I think we've like buried the lead on it a bit. I think we traced the origins of the word creator used in this context. So uh, Taylor Lorenz has, has uh, I think, traced this back to a company that YouTube acquired at one point, but I believe Kickstarter was actually using this before them. Um, so that is, um, yeah, so Yancey Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, is part of the Meta Label Squad and, uh, uh, and answered questions within the zine about this specific term. And um, so, yeah. I think he references it, or his preferred definition is maker economy rather than creator economy, but that one didn't seem to stick by the sounds of it. Yeah, it didn't stick. Um, and then some people feel strangely about the term creator having a religious 
connotation of it meaning God. Um, so maker, there was a maker movement, right? Um, there, uh, YouTube called, um, video creators partners initially. So there was like, we did end up coalescing around this term creator, I think maybe because it, uh, um, is so generalized. I like it. Um, well, I don't like it in the sense of like, <laughs> I like your description of it, but as a term, and I think that's certainly reading it. Yeah, it's, it provokes a lot of discussion around possibilities of what can come next. And I don't think any of us can have a really crystal clear view of what that future is, but would love to sort of dig in to some of those, I guess, sort of potential futures, hopeful futures, immediate futures and you know some of the pieces in there around creativity and multiplayer mode post-individualism plural organizations you know those models philosophies approaches um yeah we'd just love to hear you know each of your you know thoughts on let's keep it positive to start with <laughs> then we can go to like maybe the more of the negative side of the, you know where uh, you know where we're heading Mm. Yeah, I mean, to I think what's important in order to um, imagine alternative futures is to understand the present and the past first. So I think what we try to do with this, with this book as well, you know, analyze a little bit the historical context of the creative economy, understand where it comes from, which ideas it builds on, because I think only by really being very precise and clear about what this creative economy is today, it opens up new ways of thinking about it because it's not this all-encompassing thing that otherwise it would be if we didn't develop the language and the, um, and the fine-tuning to understand it better. Um, I do think that part of our research, for me, the biggest learning personally is really how much the whole economy and the platforms and the behaviors on it are built around the individual. It's all about us basically having personalized algorithmic feeds and being left alone in figuring out how we can make it on these platforms, how we produce work, how we publish it, essentially competing against each other for each other's atten attention. So what I'm most excited about on the f about the future is the collective structures, infrastructures that we might be able to create. And I think that both goes in a technological stack layer. Web3, of course, offers a lot of you know, new ways of imagining this from smart contracts to interoperability to ownership etc governance but also in terms of how can we relate to each other in a different way because i do think that technology will not solve all our problems it is also a mindset and a way of thinking and maybe a way of measuring success or creativity in a different way that will lead us to more collective ways of putting out work together and collaborating better so that's the future i hope for and then I'm excited to contribute somehow in building it. Yeah, I mean, we, we broke this down into four chapters, connection, content, power, and memory. And I think connection is how creative practitioners relate to each other, whether as indiv individuals or more collectively. Content, how we relate to the work itself and how it's presented and power is how we relate to the platforms and the infrastructure and the, the rails of, of, um, 
of the the creator economy. And then memory is actually more of a technical exploration of how work actually can be preserved and archived and how fragile some of these uh, platform ecosystems and databases can be. Um, so if you, in, in a world where much more um, art and important knowledge and information is digital first, there's no analog counterpart. And a lot of this information is just trusted to platforms that don't really have a say in or any control over, could change policies, ownership, or could just end at any moment. The, the, the next shift feels important to actually think technically about how we treat work as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that memory chapter's got some really, I mean, it's beyond thought-provoking, but just it's a, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that topic in that way before in terms of, I mean, storage, you know, legacy, but ultimately, like you said, the, fra the fragility of these identities that have been built on, you know, alternative or non-owned platforms. Um, maybe just digging into that a, a level down, any, uh, you know, examples, projects, case studies of organizations that you feel are manifesting and delivering on these hopeful futures? There's, yeah, there are, I, I guess, several. I, I'll, I mean, I'll just speak to the projects that I find personally interesting, but I think um, a group like Song Camp is very interesting to me. It's a collective of musicians that form collaborative songwriting camps and release work in interesting ways and split payments in interesting ways and created a 77-person band that released 45 songs in a few weeks. And that's... It was chaos. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was called chaos, <laughs> and um, that's uh, that's an example of a kind of its own bespoke economy. It's its own platform, and it is uh, like a, a very novel, ambitious experiment in how in how musicians can work and release together. Uh, it's just very fascinating to me. I think uh, something like Water and Music or Radar is is interesting. Of um, writers joining together. Um, and so, yeah, I think of like, uh, you know, what an organization the future could look like would be, I just imagine, well, what could a song camp for X look like for newsletter writers or like any, any creative practice that maybe trends to be more individual of joining together. Um, and I think, I think any organization that is, is exploring um, democratic forms of governance or co-ownership um, is trending towards a kind of next stage. I think adding to that, I agree with all of these projects. And I think what I observe historically is that in the Web 2.0 era, I think most of the online communities I've seen were kind of add-ons to existing products or apps or whatever. So the whole notion of Web 2.0 social media was like, you have something, you have a company, you have an app, you have a product, you have a service, let's build a community on top of it. So let's create a page, let's create a following, etc. And then think of ways of producing content and whatever to keep those people engaged. And I think what I've seen over the last few years is that this model has been turned around. So people first come together and be like, hey, we, you know, let's start something. And then they figure out what can we actually create together. And that starts, you know, and it's very... 
um, exciting to watch places like Water and Music or Radar that start with maybe little research reports and just producing something of value to the larger community, but then now go into real life events or like Friends with Benefits, for example, that actually these communities have real manifestations and become brands and meaningful containers for a lot of people by themselves without needing that product that they have as an add-on or something. So that's something I'm very excited about. Mm. You've got the quote from the K-Hole Youth Report in there, which I'll read because it's it's good. <laughs> uh, Once upon a time, people were born into communities and had to find their individuality. Today, people are born individuals and they have to find their communities. Yeah. And I think just building on that, uh, you know, recognition of individuals' roles, uh, you know, the toolkits or the tools that we now have at our disposal to be creators, um, you know, put work out into the world. But ultimately, and certainly for us, and relevant to, I mean, our next report on communities, and really the role of, or the redefinition of the word community, hence it being a dirty word, maybe the ultimate dirty word. Um, yeah, we'd just love to hear, I guess, sort of the framing, or ultimately, you know, your response to that sort of shift uh, in terms of, and yes, we are looking at it from a creative perspective or creative industry in another maybe definition of a creative economy. Uh, but, you know, how you see that manifesting and yeah, how you see that changing. Hmm. Well, I, well, especially in an American context, it's just decades of celebrating individualism as like a, a virtue to stand up and of you know, erosion of other kinds of institutions where people would find meaning in their lives, um, either like religious or otherwise people being, you know, I think, I think that there is a decades long shift and maybe it's just an inflection point now where, um, that idea of finding your community or your tribe is something that sometimes we don't know how to do <laughs> or like we have to unlearn a lot of things that, that have been internalized. Um, so yeah, I think of like my parents' generation as like baby boomers is basically only existing through the span of neoliberalism in the U S as like this invisible ideology celebrating like self-reliance, individualism, um, and, and I think like, these are just deep cultural values that have been eroded. And so it's like a, it's, it takes like a very conscious effort now to like find your tribe or find your, your community, but there's so much value in that. And I, I am inspired by, by people and, and groups that have, that have, um, made, made strides towards this and like demonstrated cool ways of, of getting together for like a shared purpose. Hmm. I think the internet has always existed for people to find their people, you know? So, uh, you know, already back in the nineties, we went online to find people with the same similar niche, in niche interests, communicated on fora, etc., and felt a sense of belonging, belonging and community to people at the other end of the world. So I think, the internet has always served that purpose to some extent. What I'm currently thinking about is that 
what has changed in a post-pandemic world? Because I do think that we're only starting to grasp how much of our physical infrastructure kind of has been vanished and taken away over the last few years. Because what's been exciting is that everything went online and so much of our cultural and value production went online and we collectively as a society learned that it's actually possible. But now that we're going back to real life, we realize actually a lot of us have unlearned how to approach a person at a bar and talk to a stranger or rather go to a dating app or a friendship app or whatever to find people. So a lot of these cultural practices that humanity has developed over thousands of years to find each other have been taken online and probably can't be taken offline in the same way. So given that, I think for the future of community, we more and more have the choice whether do we want to find community online and put our energy and time and resources into online communities that eventually translate into something offline? Do we want to do it offline? Because these two worlds are more and more independent from each other. I think before the pandemic, these two worlds were somehow connected. And now we can choose, like, do we want to exist online and build our identities and, and systems online? Or do we want to do it offline? Because what's new is you can do it entirely online now. You can do exist entirely online, make money online, collaborate online, and don't have to exist in physical world necessarily. You do not have to leave your house anymore. So I think that's interesting because and I, I do see counter movements where people actually start perceiving the internet not as this essential infrastructure, but as something optional. To be like, actually what, I'll leave my phone at home, I'll just exist in the real world and see what happens. So that's kind of something I'm currently thinking about a lot. Well, you ran a workshop that I attended yes, online. Yes, both of you attended, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and, I mean, just building on that, would love to hear, well, I guess sort of two framings. One, I mean, you've just covered the observation of a post-pandemic world, but maybe more pertinently sort of following that workshop, you know, how that thinking has evolved. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the difference between London and Berlin mm. in terms of post-COVID behavior um so yeah we sort of extrapolating that thought process you know where, where do you see that ending up i see it ending up i mean there is a dystopian future vision that i've also discussed with a few people already where i would say i'd say there's a future where in 10 or 20 years it becomes a luxury to exist in the real world or in the physical world because real world, I think, is the wrong word because we create reality both for both virtual and physical environments. But I think it's becoming more and more of a luxury to be able to actually log off and not be online. And a majority of people worldwide who do not have the same privilege and opportunities we have, I think, will be forced somehow to be online and create these tasks of whatever mining, crypto in uh, pay-to-earn game, play-to-earn games and all that stuff that's already happening. Like there's already, even in our little community world on Discord, you, you know, I'm definitely part of a few Discord servers with thousands of people that are being moderated 20 hours a day by some person in Asia that makes a good living of it, but nobody else wants to do that sort of job anymore. So I think that's the dystopian part of it, that like existing solely in the physical world will become a luxury, I think, for privileged people. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can't think of something positive now. 
<clears throat> I think, I mean, adding to that, I, I, I just think another thought that's constantly with me is this, something that's very much within this web-free ecosystem context is that we're trying to save the internet, you know, and we somehow come to expect that the internet is here to solve our problems. But that's just not true. The, the reality is we have a lot of problems in the world and a lot of these problems are reflected on the internet. So I do think maybe another thought is like, let's not just try to fix the internet, let's try to fix the world overall. And maybe it goes you know, through the internet as well, vice versa. But uh, yeah, I don't think the internet can solve all our problems. Probably. Is this where we talk about AI and GPT-4 oh. and oh, no. 5 and 6? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I have to say, that was my observation coming back to the report. Well, you call it a book, you call it a zine, I call it a report. There we go. Or a booklet, or it was a zine that became that has a spine. So whatever that. Is your observation, do you want to tell us that this could have been written by an AI? No. We are rendered useless here. <laughs> this, was, this was published before gpt Three came out, I think. Ah, okay. Yeah. And that was, that was, was my uh, observation of the commentary on the role of AI in the creator economy. Right. I, this was published in December. And when did GPT-3 come out? I mean, we're already on four. It was, but around, I, it was around then. It was January. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> missed that. We already need to catch up. There's already so much that's that's happened. But in your own observative light words of sort of an AI lens talking about, you know, the, you know, the technology is never the answer. But, you know, through the lens of the creator economy and, you know, talking about Holly Hurden and, you know, what she's doing with spawning and some of the responses to AI in, in the creative world. Yeah, we'd just love to hear your views on Oh, you know where that where that potentially might you know where that will land eventually. I I don't know if I have the any hot takes here. <laughs> I I think that I think that people will largely incorporate some elements of these. Like we'll kind of take it for granted in in some way very soon. Just like every other kind of new innovation that we've like seamlessly adopted into our lives um yeah i mean it'll be like when when it touches the real world it's like real people's jobs that's interesting i think like seeing how how this tech in particular might disrupt people's jobs i think of like truck driving being the most common job for a man in every state in the US like that I don't know there's something about that that makes me kind of nervous right um, yeah I guess I maybe I, I, I guess I think about AI less through uh, like how will this disrupt creativity although there there definitely are people that work in pixel pushing jobs that like are maybe made redundant, but I guess I think about it more through like a labor lens, um, and outside of a creativity lens. I think it's it's probably likely to disrupt, um, from like a, a yeah a point of view of like a labor market more generally than graphic designers. 
or musicians, right? I feel like the there is something interesting about how it elevates what it means to be human much more and makes that more important. So in that way, I think it actually makes art more important, being a human, having a human touch. I mean, I think about it, you know, what I find interesting right now is that AI right now in our society has this sense of urgency. I think over the last few years, a lot of the tech talk in society in general was metaverse, web-free, all of this stuff, which was still and are still abstract concepts. Like you could not enter a real metaverse in the past. And suddenly AI is here and everyone sees it happening on GPT-3 and, and DAL-E and so on. And there's a real, real fear amongst all my creative friends who are designers and artists, etc., that AI will replace them. So the fear is real, I think. The approach that I adopted so far is the idea that, okay, we should not be scared of this because we have to understand that AI are not just are not magical machines, but AIs are being programmed by humans based on certain rules and algorithms that we develop. So we also, in, in this sense, have the responsibility to try to participate in discussion on how we want these AIs to function and to work. Um, yeah, but of course, a lot of it is going to be created by AIs in the future. And I, I would say, as much as I know about Netflix, for me, Netflix is already AI-generated. Like, for years, Netflix has been very adamant about their, their data-driven approach. Like, oh, we just take the data, we know how many people watch this, and we analyze every second, and then we create new shows based on that, so we know exactly what people want. The result we see is that Netflix has become very, very boring. You know, and other TV shows, other forms of entertainment have kind of like also slowly taken over because what this data-driven, AI-driven approach does is it replicates what we already know. I'm not sure how much really groundbreaking new stuff it actually creates. So I'm still hopeful and optimistic about the role of human creativity in this sense to actually... And also the way humans respond to these. I think it's definitely going to take us to a next level. Um, but the real groundbreaking stuff, I think, will still come from humans. So qualitative versus quantitative yes. kind of research methodology. You know, the data can paint so much of the picture, but if you really want those nuggets, you need that depth of that qualitative you know, human discussion. Yeah, but this it is... Makes sense. I mean, this is a larger discussion. Like, I see so many links. I just recently read this article. There was a big article in The New Yorker about how the humanities studies in the US are declining. Basically, there's two thirds less people enrolling in a humanities, you know, English literature, whatever, in, in elite universities in the US than 20 or 30 years ago. Everyone is into like STEM and mathematics and engineering and stuff because that's what the world communicates to us. This is what we need nowadays. Um, so there's a real question, I think, in our world across all of this technological, technological development do we want to live in a world that in, that's entirely rational, mathematical, digital, binary? Or is there still value in this like emotional, history-led perception that's very human and soft and can't be quantified in the same way? That is, I think, has been losing more and more significance and traction ever since the internet came up. I have no answer, but I do think um, it's interesting to think in these two categories. Mm. Or making it more human. Yeah, Perhaps. whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> what was the Daft Punk? Human after all? Yeah. 
Um, if I may bring it back to community as a thread and, and you know, the topic of our next report, would love to hear your definition of community. So I, let's see, in the, in this book, we, we dove into that a bit as a word that maybe has been, um, used in a way that becomes out of currency in a way or loses meaning or that it's appropriated in certain ways where it is more in a commercial context of how people view it. I would view a community as a group of people with mutual care for each other. I, I think that's just, I don't think that uh, people that read the same newsletter are always fit into that category. Um, it's a complex term to define, but the way that I would think about what creates a community rather than just like a category of people is, is based on care. I think it's great. People coming together over a shared purpose is my go-to definition. I still stick with that. Um, and it's still more important than ever. So <laughs> no matter how dirty the word is, it really matters. <laughs> For sure. I like to think of it as a formula that community is a venture plus belonging plus ownership multiplied by vibes. Um, <laughs> so the vibes are zero. <laughs> then there's nothing. There's no community. Pretty much. Okay. Negative vibes. Yeah. Negative, negative community. community. Um, but, you know, I mean, we've been exploring this, obviously. Uh, we've been questioning it. This is actually the second, uh, you know, I mean, it's not really the attempt, the, you know, the second version of the we released, we released the community report in 2016. So, again, it's, it's a term that 100% has been commodified and lost all meaning. And I think the relevance for us now and I think generally is certainly you mentioned Web3 is that as reinvigorating or re-empowering individuals to come together you know with a new tool stack with the new ownership models with new um you know economies right in terms of commercial you know new possible commercial solutions to that are fully independent of the previous platforms and uh, certainly to us, and this is the experiments we're running within Protein are trying to, you know, trying to answer some of those questions. Um, but question to you individually within your roles as founders, instigators, uh, and this is, <laughs> I'm curious for myself on this question, um, how you balance that, that, that role of, you know, between a founder and instigator, but equally as a, you know, as a member and as a contributor within a community? Hmm. Well, I would say my experience working um, in like a leadership position within a cooperative was that any kind of advice that someone from a more traditional background would give me about management would just go out the window that any kind of person reading high output management or whatever 
like someone at McKinsey would suggest is just completely wrong. And it just comes from a different worldview and mindset. I, I think, uh, it's, it's about, uh, vulnerability and knowing when to step back one. Um, and I think the, I think, a, like a better parallel to starting a, a company or being a, a is like creating a, like a grassroots policy campaign. Like your, your job is really to plant a flag, like articulate something and give people a way to plug into something, which is a very different kind of, um, set of character traits and how you present yourself to the world. Um, I think, I think, uh, it's a version of leadership where it's okay to not know all the answers. Right. And, and empower other people. And yeah, it, it really is kind of more like a, like a, a campaign than it is like managing people. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I fully agree with that. I, I do think what I'd add to that is that the role of the instigator or leader is to set the framework and manage manage expectations. I think the worst communities interactions I've seen is like when someone just starts something, it's completely unclear how long will it take, um, what do I get for it, will there be a finished result, and probably in the end there's no finished result anyway, and lots of people have put in their love and energy into something that does not exist. So that's the worst example. And the opposite is the best example of you plant the flag, you tell people in full transparency, I have a vision or we have a vision, but we're still articulating it. We're still you know, learning as we go along, but at least give a clear outline of, this is what we're gonna do. This is how long it's gonna take. This is what you're gonna get for it. And if that's successful, then everyone's going to be happy and the community is going to be even stronger with whatever artifact has been created. There, there's the debate of like leader full versus leaderless organizations. And I'm on the side of still leader full organizations are the ones that will be successful, right? It's just like a different version of, of leadership than more of like a traditional corporate environment. Mm -hmm. And maybe dovetailing into your what DAOs can learn from co-ops piece and maybe extracting that or broadening that in a sort of a, what Web3 can learn from Web2, you know, with a slightly wider lens. Uh, it would, yeah, just be good to get some, I guess, some thought starters of organizations who are looking to enter this new world of where they can go and find some inspiration. I mean, Web3 has learned plenty from Web2. I, <laughs> I think Web3 should stop learning so much from Web2. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot of kind of the biases and assumptions built in. Uh, like, you know, exit models, um, a, a bias towards growth uh, at all costs. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think... I think uh, the the danger is there's a lot of uh, again just appropriation of language with language within Web three um, to almost like more precisely extract value than like you could in Web two 
Um, this is just like on a case by case basis with, with projects, but I, I still find that much of the same kind of, uh, mental logic is still there. Um, so I, I just see that as like part of, again, like our longer path of like maybe thinking more critically of what kind of cultural practices within building organizations we can let go or the, what, which ones we just kind of accept as like a, you know, a default. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I'm on the side of thinking web three is, is built in plenty of the defaults, but I am in of web two, but I am encouraged by the genuine experiments towards collective ownership. And I see, I see like a lot of really genuine people building really cool experiments that are all something to say yes to that move the, the ball forward in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think on a personal level, if you know, if you have like experience, in a startup, it's sometimes it can be, you just have these practices kind of baked in of ways that you expect to do things. And the other problem is if you don't have that experience at all, then a project may suffer from, um, like that kind of like lack of context. Right. But also may benefit from it at the same time. I mean, we've talked previously with Nathan Schneider about exit to community and, you talk about new ownership models and as mentioned, you know, Web3 can, and it's still early, you know, I, I, you potentially provide some new way, new approaches to how organizations are structured. And I think certainly from our exploration along that road, uh, <laughs> none of it's straightforward, none of it's easy. That doesn't mean to say we shouldn't definitely sort of explore it. Um, but ultimately, and hopefully, you know, there is some genuinely new approaches to how organizations can operate. And I mean, personally, that's what is driving what we're doing at Protein Forward, even if it is very much into sort of an unknown future. Uh, but I mean, that's, yeah, that hasn't stopped us before. Yeah, I mean, the exit to community framework is interesting to me because it just in a startup context there really are only a a handful of even just like in results that could happen it's either kind of failure um you sell your company to another bigger company you go massive scale and go public um and then if you're a glitch in the system you just become profitable and self-sustaining uh, without having done any of those things. Um, and yeah, the idea of transferring, a, an organization back to the people that rely on it, there are so few ex- examples of that, but like, why it, it feels like there's just no roadmap. So again, if you're like starting an organization, you want, or a startup, you want to build the thing. Like it's hard enough just to get people to use something and build something useful that like the pressure of having to learn all of the rules, legal, organizational, and that's just the, that's at the start. And you have to break those rules in ways that are, 
that anticipate what's going to happen with this thing that hasn't been built yet. It's just like very challenging. So I see, yeah, ex- ex- any anybody that's exploring this path, I think, is like helping tread um, this other this other future. I mean, I see like a lot of you know Bandcamp sold to Epic Games. I had the opportunity to talk to one of the Bandcamp founders and uh, tried to suggest exit to community as an option. And, um, it was very warmly received and it had been, it was clear to me that, um, that this founder had never considered this as an option before. So someone building one of like the healthier, cooler, more independent startups for over a decade, 15 years had never heard of this concept. So we're, there needs to be examples and roadmaps. Like this is an example of like the cultural defaults. If that were an option and there were a clear path to doing that when, an, when a platform like Bandcamp would start, then maybe independent music would look completely different today. I 100% agree. And I mean, here in the UK, there are a couple of examples. John Lewis as a, you know, a national retailer and, you know, within a legal framework, it's got partnership and which is the nearest not quite perfect analogy to a DAO but you know shared ownership shared interest or employee and trust so there's a few there's a few examples but I fully agree there's definitely not enough mm-hmm. just switching gears if I may to sort of younger Austin and Severin um, <laughs> the more adolescent versions of your now mature 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 ourselves um curious to sort of understand a bit about sort of maybe some of the early influences as to where and why and how you ended up in you know your current roles and your current outlooks um either of you can go first (laughs) but in terms of you know early years where you grew up what is some of those earlier memorable you know, shifts in direction that you feel that have you know, formed who you are today? Well, I recently wrote this phrase where I had to talk about myself, where I wrote, I grew up in the 90s with computers, video games, and talking to strangers on the internet, which, which yeah, was a reality. And I think, um, for me, I think the formative, some of the formative experiences I can think of is, yeah, I've, I've kind of like went online in the late 90s and played a lot of online games. I played a lot of StarCraft and World of Warcraft. I was actually part of the first um, Macintosh gamer clan in Germany because there wasn't that many games and not many gamers uh, owning a Mac in the 90s. And I went when I was 14, I took a night train to Switzerland to go to a LAN party uh, with complete strangers that I'd never met before, but I only knew through the internet. So I think experiences like this, somehow early on, it felt very natural to me to do that. But I realized, yeah, I've kind of experienced the power of the internet, the power of connection and the power of people coming together from various places in the world very early on. Um, and that kind of, I think, stuck with me, this want to use the internet for these sort of things. And I think the other thing is that... Yeah, somehow a few years later, I really got into literature and philosophy. I ended up studying philosophy 
because I was interested in the various ideas and theories and concepts of how we can view the world and how we can create reality in a way. And I ended up studying a lot of the 20th century media theorists like Marshall McLuhan, um, Walter Ong, uh, Willem Flusser, Wittgenstein, who wasn't a media theorist, but who also influenced me a lot. Um, to, and I think what I learned by studying five years of philosophy is that, you know, over the course of the last few thousand years, humanity has come up with a lot of different ways of trying to understand the world. And that especially throughout the 20th and 20th century, 21st century, technology and media are taking an ever more important form of us trying to make sense of this world. So I think it's two, these two things that formed me in a way. I think people coming together for something and um, technology changing the world and changing the way we, we see reality. That's, that's the two things I can think of. Yeah, love that. Think, um, if I think of a uh, little younger, younger Austin. Yeah, where did Austin grow up? <laughs> uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Um, Is that why your dog's from Texas? That's a coincidence, actually. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about this. I mean, I, I studied uh, design. I studied architecture. I have a Bachelor of Architecture. Um, so there's this... I, I think that that like, background of studying design has always colored everything that I've done, of, of thinking about design more expansively as like creativity within constraints. And I largely think of work today as through a design lens in some way, like organizational design. And like young, young Austin, I remember oh, my, my dad is an architect and I remember like sitting at the drafting table and just like drawing and just being like in awe of like walls of books and drawings around just be like feeling like it's so cool to be able to use like a creative vision to shape the world around you, just like have that early memory. And, uh, you know, in London two, two days ago, I met up with a friend that I met on MySpace in 2008, like through playing music. There's also like, you know, uh, like playing music back in the day, putting things on the internet and um, being able to meet cool people from all over. And that is an experience that not only showed kind of like the scale of the web in a surprising way, but, but I still have several best friends that I met on MySpace, which sounds crazy, but it's, it's true. And I hung out with one a couple of days ago. Um, so yeah, like, I feel like I've, you know, found my, my people, through the internet at times and the people that have been incredibly generous towards me. And, um, yeah. And I've, I've also like worked on projects with people where I felt like things weren't fair sometimes. Like I remember kicking around a startup idea with a friend and having squabbles about ownership in this, in the idea. And that is something that left a really poor taste in my mouth. And starting something new, it just felt like that felt really important to me for something to be uh, generous and shared, um, like taking away, you know, the kind of um, 
I guess like zero sumness of negotiating across the table from someone to building something that's like shared and with a collective benefit. So, I mean, those are some examples. I feel like those all kind of like add up to possibly, you know, uh, meta label today or just kind of like general thinking or interest around the internet and kind of more collective forms of creativity. Mm. Love it. Always like to hear the backstories. <laughs> what about you, Will? <laughs> it's not a podcast about me, Severin. <laughs> um, cool, guys. This has been great. Um, final question. Well, it's two questions, really. But where can people find the book, Zine Report? It's on um, collect.metalabel.xyz. And there's a free PDF version. The actual book is sold out. Sorry, but there's a free PDF version on the website. Great. And if people want to get in touch with either of you, where what's the best channel? Twitter. Twitter's good. Um, Austin at metalabel.xyz as well. And your Twitter is? Austin Roby underscore. My Twitter is Severin Matusek or Comatter. And that works as well on Instagram and email. Severin, Severin at comatter.com. Cool. Thanks, gentlemen. This has been a pleasure. Um, congratulations on the release. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it later. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it.